Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Our guests today are off on a new adventure to bring bespoke product guidance to LA startups and businesses with their own startup product consultancy, Creative Brains. Mallory Ruhlman and Dave Bellotti are a seasoned designer-developer duo who are partners in business and in life. They've both recently left senior posts at the well-established product firms Philosophy and Pivotal Labs to pursue the work they love. This is their story. Let's start back at UC Santa Barbara, which is where you two met. Who wants to tell... Do you get asked this story a lot? <laughs> tell us about how you met. Dave was studying computer engineering as a grad student. I was studying communications in undergrad at uh, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. And I was pretty frustrated because I didn't really see my life going down the marketing path or the advertising path, which most of the people in my program were going. I really wanted to do something um, music and tech related, and I didn't really know how to get into the industry. And so I would talk about this frustration a lot with Dave. And um, he was in computer engineering and thought he was going to go into like more of a hardware space or aerospace or something. Yeah, I was uh, actively like looking for jobs in um, like defense contract companies. Can I just, I don't want to age you all, but I just want to try and get a sense of the cultural landscape at this time. I mean, where are we in the pre-post-Uber? Oh, this is pre-Uber, pre-Venmo, pre-all of the things that would have made college way better. Yeah. Um, But this was uh, 2006? Yeah. Seven? Because advertising was kind of the holy grail path to pursue, I think, for a really long time. So the very fact that you were sensing you had some spidey sense that something was wrong you were like a true visionary uh, i i guess i just it wasn't interesting to me okay. um i i wanted to do something i wanted to start my own business my parents had their own business and i, I knew i wanted to do something in music because that was what i was passionate about um and so dave he told me well there's all these engineers that don't understand you know how to do sales or how to do business things and so they created this program called technology management program within the engineering department. And I think I'm going to sign up. Sounds like something that you might be interested in too. So he ended up recruiting me into that program. And I went in my first day as a sophomore, probably. And I was one of the only women, the only one of the only non-engineers in the program. And I loved it because I was studying communication, wanted to do more of like a business economics focus. And I felt like if I had that understanding, I could help the engineers be more business and sales oriented, and they could help me be more technical and engineering focused. So maybe I could be a bridge between sales and engineering. And that was something that was really exciting to me at the time. Right. You're sort of intuitively feeling into the gaps that the product managers fill all the time. It's it's, uh, an engineer speaks a certain type of language, and then your job is to try to get inside of that brain decode it and then, you know, re-communicate it to somebody who doesn't speak that language. Exactly. Right. So she speaks your language. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also add that like UCSB had a bunch of these capstone pro- uh, capstone programs that different departments would participate in. And I think that this was sort of like the natural evolution of, of taking all this great technical work that was that's happening and like combining it with, you know, some practical business education and making it more of like a streamlined um, process from kids who have these cool ideas with these things they're studying and, and like connecting them with potential investors and 
putting business plans around these things and then like pitching them because there was already happening with capstone project that I was participating in in engineering and other departments had their own versions of. So, um, it was kind of the same process and there, there was even a TMP like capstone thing that you would participate in. It was like a year long. And these capstone projects actually became businesses. So many of them are, are successful functioning businesses that are in operation today. And one of our best friends actually works at one up in Santa Barbara called BioIQ, which came out of the TMP program. So it's almost an incubator. Exactly. Wow. Is the program still around? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's yeah, really it's, cool. It's been like boosted up to, there's it's like an official certificate you can get now. And so when we took it, it was more of just like, um, and there was a certificate, but I don't know how official it was. It wasn't it like was, a minor. It was the MVP of the right. program. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. So you, uh, you're you're from Southern California, Mallory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, you're not from Southern California. We're not going to hold that against you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even from Southern California. So I got here as fast as I could. As <laughs> <laughs> soon as winter came, I was out of here. But um, I bring it up because you've both been here a long time. So, you know, you're up in Santa Barbara. You're participating in this kind of uh, cutting edge technology education program, which by the way, I mean, there's still very few programs. This is kind of one of the things that comes up a lot from my perspective teaching at General Assembly is there's not a lot of programs being offered at the college or university level that can teach these concepts in a new way. The schools are, are I think, maybe having a difficult time mobilizing I digress. You're in Santa Barbara. You've been here a long time. So you've seen LA Tech. You've seen Uber come into existence. You've seen Venmo. You've seen the rest. Tell us a little bit about your experience watching that, just being part of it. Yeah, I was just thinking about how our experience has changed since, you know, going to school in 2006 and then working in Santa Barbara in the beginning of the, you know, tech scene there. And then moving down to LA where it was, you know, starting to to catch its stride a little bit and how we kind of saw that transition over time. And I was thinking a lot about how when we got back from traveling and we were living on a couch (laughs) and you were working um, at Start Engine, like like, kind of how that... My my personal evolution as a like technologist in LA was kind of... um, I I was participating in a lot of hackathons when I got here, um, just trying to like parachute into a, a group of people, you know, oftentimes in accelerators or incubators and just hack out some work that they needed to be done and then just kind of get out of there. And I feel like that, that style of development and prototyping, um, and product design is like becoming more and more accepted as a process that should be employed when people are trying to discover like a new feature or whether this feature could be viable, but we don't want to dump tens of thousands of dollars into it. And when I first came to LA, that was that was like, you participate in a hackathon. You might get together with some people and just like hash out an idea. But I find myself, as I mature as a consultant, like pitching that same process to, to clients that are asking me tough questions about, you know, how they should develop their, their product and how, how they should design it and how they can verify that that hypothesis they made is is accurate. So I, I think being able to build that into the consulting practice and into the product development process is like really making things more efficient and people can accept that they're gonna maybe just throw this prototype away, then um, it, it opens a lot of doors for them to move faster and not put so many resources into this thing that's just gonna fail. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's it's an approach that I subscribe to and, and we embrace at the Development Factory, how we kind of talk to clients about conceiving product, testing product, not falling in love with the solution. One of the things that I've heard talking to other people who work in kind of outside consultancies is that it's still difficult to get clients comfortable with the idea of not perfect. I think it's it's difficult for a lot of even people working on product teams. It's difficult for developers not to be perfect in their own right. I think it's difficult for designers. So, you know, a lot of these ideas about let's just quickly hack together something to prove, you know, a piece. And if it works, we'll go back and we'll do it right and we'll fix it and we'll make it scalable is 
easy in, in concept and harder in practice. Has that been your experience? Or do you just have the most open-minded clients and I need to poach some of them? <laughs> uh, show me when, where they are when you find them because that's not a thing. Uh, I, you've said something about falling in love with the solution that it just really resonates with me because I feel like that's half the battle as a product manager is helping people realize that the, they are in love with the solution and not a problem and really like unpacking what the problem is that they're trying to solve with that solution. Um, so something recently that I that came to mind was a client uh, came to to me when I was working at Philosophy and they were they had a research grant. They want to find a way to connect uh, young African-American men who are HIV positive with other men who are HIV positive, because once you are diagnosed, it's a very scary thing. And oftentimes what will happen is it's a traumatic experience. They will lose their their jobs. They'll get kicked out of their house. They will, you know, move cities to just try and find themselves and usually end up relying on like drugs or alcohol or something like this. And it's just this kind of like downward spiral. And a lot of that is because they don't know anyone else who's gay, let alone HIV positive. And they said, we want to build a community for people who are newly diagnosed, um, particularly African-American men who are 18 to 32. And they wanted to build Grinder. That's what they saw as a way to build community and connect people. And I could not get it out of their heads that Grinder wasn't the solution. That now, we did they needed. actually come more or less and say basically Grinder, but with our logo on it? Or they were describing what you understood was a product that's already in market serving a very different need? Literally, they said, like, we want to build something like Grinder. Everyone that we've talked to says that their favorite app is Grinder and Facebook. Right. And so instead of just saying, no, that's a ridiculous idea, I designed a solution that looked a lot like Grinder. And I put that up to a solution that looked a lot more like Slack, where it was a community, you know, chat interface. And then I designed a solution that was a lot more like a Quora or a Stack Overflow, where it's like ask questions, get answers from a community kind of thing. And these were just paper prototypes. So I tested all three of those prototypes with the client in the room, with the demographic that we were targeting. And we got immediate feedback on each of those solutions. And some of the things that we got on the Grinder solution were, oh my God, this is like Grinder. Why would I want to talk about being positive on Grinder? You know, this isn't a safe place for me. I feel like I'm going to be judged and that sort of thing. So it wasn't until that I w was able to actually do a lightweight version of that solution in front of the client and test it with the demographic that they were able to be like, oh my God, we shouldn't build Grinder. <laughs> you know, this is not going to solve our problem. So we ended up building like a totally uh, hybrid version of like a community Slack feature with a, uh, uh, we call it a coach where they get paired up with someone who's like a mentor kind of figure um, where they can ask some of those more challenging questions. But it wasn't until we were able to disprove that solution that they could see past it. So something that I think is pretty fun to get people away from being married to the solution. Right, I'm glad you bring up um, paper prototypes as well because mm -hmm. you know when we talk in in my class certainly we explore customer development Steve Blank's kind of concept of customer development and inevitably somebody gets out in front of the material enough to say but what if people don't know what they want which is of course you know that's Henry Ford says if I asked them they would have said faster horses so prototyping can be a great way to go from I've done some exploratory conversations. I've got some interview data. I've got an indication that there's a real problem here, but I'm still not sure that I know what the solution looks like or needs to look like, as in the case in the example that you describe. How effective is paper prototyping? Because there is a kind of silliness to it, right? And it, it makes me wonder how much people are really kind of connecting with the concepts versus not connecting because one thing to be like here's a url with some clickable screens and it's vaporware but it looks and functions a lot like the software product would it's another to sort of put a stack of cutouts in front of someone and say press this button now this button what is that like can you talk about that experience a bit yeah absolutely i mean in the 
design thinking process, it starts with a paper prototype, like even a napkin sketch. It doesn't really matter what what it is. Um, I had some cardstock that I was using that were in the shape of a phone. So I did that as the first round of user testing, and we did that in three days. So we they started the project on Monday, and by Wednesday, we had three paper prototypes. And by the end of the week, Friday, we had a clickable Envision prototype. So it's it's a way to get to the higher fidelity version, but I used it as a way to steer the conversation away from being married to a solution. Um, and I think that's really what it's good for is like test all of the ideas. There should be thousands of ideas of what we should build and why, um, but how do you test them in the lightest weight version possible? And sometimes it's experiments, sometimes it's paper prototypes, it's whatever it really calls for. So that was just the one I used in that example. Let's, you know, you sort of, you mentioned philosophy and for the benefit of our listeners, let me do a proper introduction. So first mm -hmm. of all, both of you come from kind of two of LA's premier product consultancies, right? Mallory, you were with philosophy. Dave, you were over at Pivotal Labs, both companies I admire tremendously. And then you left. We're going to talk about why you left. Before we talk about why you left, uh, tell us about the experience of working there. I mean, first of all, they're very different in scale. I mean, how many people at Pivotal? A thousand, maybe? Tons. There's The number is just constantly growing because we're, we're developing a product called Cloud Foundry, which is a huge um, enterprise scale cloud uh, platform that you can use to have your developers. It's basically like Heroku, but open source. So as more and more enterprises join that federation um the numbers just keep keep growing so new cities more like another hundred engineers here and there so right I mean, there's almost an irony to the construct of pivotal which is that it's this sort of lean product consultancy yeah. that is an enterprise yeah um how do they manage that yeah so pivotal has a um it's it's broken down into a number of, of different organizations. Uh, Pivotal Labs is the consulting arm of it, and it, it will always be the consulting arm of it. And that the structure hasn't changed and won't change, uh, which is usually engaging with startups and sometimes enterprises. It's moving more toward enterprises because there's a bit of more synergy with Cloud Foundry. Well, and startups um, don't really have money for long. That's the other problem. Yeah, they've-, they've I can say it. They've been well-funded startups. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> always. <laughs> Um, but yeah, those teams are usually like a handful of pivots, maybe like three pairs of pivots, um, on average and an engagement will be like, I don't know, nine months on average. That's pretty, pretty reasonable to expect. And is that coming in the door with a concept and leaving with multiple iterations of a product or is it coming in the door with a product that's not working and leaving with a model that's got traction? Yeah, it's it's kind of a mix of all these things. Uh, and over time, we've I keep saying we because I literally I just left like a month ago, and I very much feel like that's still part of my family. Um, but we have spun out uh, design practices from our core engineering practices based on the needs of these clients who have come in the door. Like sometimes they have an idea and funding, and they don't really they don't really want to spend the time to like build an engineering culture into this startup that was just conceived and they want to kind of like their investors want them to hit the ground running they want to hit the ground running and they want to start on the right foot they want to have like good process in place with the team that knows how to execute that process and so those cases they come in with an idea and they leave with a you know they leave with production software probably within a few iterations maybe even the first like um the whole like the whole goal with pivotal is is top quality through test-driven development and pair programming and um, continuous delivery. So nearly every push, every code push should um, result in a production deploy. And so you should be able to get that like week one. So would you say the primary problem that they're solving or seeking to solve is the work that goes into essentially insourcing your own digital department? I mean, certainly I know people think you can just put two developers in a room and call it a digital department and it's not that. Yeah. So is that kind of the primary value proposition? It's we can get you into market before you can find three developers to hire and train yourself. Yeah, I definitely, 
as an engineer there, I was focusing on getting getting the product out there and then educating the clients on how to run this process that we're employing and also helping them hire a team and kind of like putting all of that together and then sort of phasing ourselves out, which is a funny, I mean, it's, it's a funny way to operate your business because you're sort of relieving yourself of a job in a way, but we found that mostly, you know, that, that equals success for our clients and they kind of like speak highly of us to other, other potential clients, or they just kind of come back for, for other engagements when they need to start a new product line or, you know, revisit some product that's kind of like gone off the rails a little bit or, or whatever it is. But, um, yeah, I'd say primarily execution. And then after that, it's just like tons of enablement and education for whoever's working with us. Mallory, philosophy is a much smaller situation. Tell us about kind of the construct over there and, and how your experiences were similar or different. Yeah, uh, just in size alone, philosophy is based out of LA headquartered, also has a large presence in New York and is just starting up an office in San Francisco. So they're probably about 40 to 50, I'd say, in total. Most of that being in LA, where I think there's like 25 or 30. The real difference between philosophy and Pivotal is exactly like Dave said, like we're going to help you scale up a team. We're going to build a product for you over the course of nine months, and we're going to implement these really strong practices that are going to help you um, in the long run. Philosophy is really focused on the beginning of any product. So if it's an enterprise client that wants to build out a new product, like we would be working with mostly innovation teams um, within a larger enterprise. And then the people that we really love to work with are the startups. But as you said, it's very expensive to hire a consultancy from the, from the get-go. So philosophies kind of altered their offering over the years. And what they're doing a lot of now are these really, really lightweight uh, four to six week MVPs. So you come to us with an idea and we'll help you build something, test it, and ship it within four to six weeks. Um, and that means you get a fully staffed team of two engineers, a designer, and a product strategist. Uh, and they'll work with you to bring that idea to life. Yeah, I've always been fascinated about that model because one of the things I think is interesting about philosophy is they put the price right on the website. Mm -hmm. They're like, this many dollars for that thing. Right. And so is it, without kind of getting too much into their special recipe of how mm -hmm. they do things, is the subtext of that it's rooted in a number of hours and our ability to kind of control the scope or is it we know we can deliver something functional at this price point so you just have to trust us that if we can't it's because we're collectively not being as lean as we can be in approaching the build mm. because you know scope creep is oh real. totally yeah. totally i think that that's like a constant balance and that's a lot on the product strategist i think that uh, and, and a tech lead, I feel like they work together to say, this is realistic, this isn't realistic, and managing kind of those expectations together. So you get really good at scoping. <laughs> uh, so I would say that it's a mix between setting expectations of, hey, this is the problem that you want to solve. That happens in sales up front. These are the features that you think we're going to solve that problem. We're going to work with you in the first week to kind of test that feature set as quickly as possible in a design sprint kind of approach. And then we're going to spend the rest of those three weeks building out the features that we've validated. So and setting you up for a process to kind of track that over time. Just to, to pit you two against each other in yeah. your respective sort of affinities for, for these companies. This it raises the question, at least for me, of is there an inevitable point where scale hurts you that even if like at Pivotal deeply deeply rooted into your philosophy are these sort of iterative agile lean thinking processes across everything across strategy across development that inevitably once you have a company with four or five hundred people and Google is the same I mean they're an innovative company but they're not small mm -hmm. versus an organization like philosophy with you know 20 30 people they're scrappy and and they're resourceful is it really hard to be lean when you're big yeah i i think that um i've seen a lot of enterprise struggling with product development so they're they have these like 
huge products that are super successful and they're they're basically bankrolling all of their development all of their hiring all of their activities for years and then all of a sudden like and especially as time goes on that 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 runway shortens more and more um they're not getting the the same they're predicting that that runway is going to run out basically and they're like how do we you know use our use our own data use our own teams to develop new products but they're so cemented in this kind of like in the system that is just uh, facilitating the sort of status quo product development that they've they've got going like bug fixes and like minor feature updates um so anyway there there's a lot of enterprises that are reaching out to these consultancies and trying to do this kind of like startup culture like build a startup culture from within the company um, which I think is really great because that company is like sort of a highly targeted VC firm in some ways where they have the opportunity to hear ideas and you know put money into small teams uh, to innovate from within and at Pivotal there's like a huge offering for for building sort of like a startup culture within an enterprise and they'll literally just ship over all the interested uh, members of their company to start like a, a, a labs for that enterprise um, where they would just be like in the Pivotal Labs office doing everything the same that as um, Pivotal processes employing. So um, they're basically just pivots. And uh, I, I think it's interesting to see enterprises moving in that direction because I don't think they were doing that before, but I feel like they're seeing that that is the way to kind of like stay relevant. There's a book running lean that talks a lot about this. Well, and, and scaling lean is, is the counterpart to it. So you're talking about Ash Moria's running lean. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is exactly the point is, is scaling lean possible or is there a point? I, I certainly, I, I can understand this idea that legacy enterprise companies are looking for help from the the startup community so to speak yeah but i'm even just talking about as a consultancy or an innovation team if you're too big can you be i i always see it as you know as the team grows too big it kind of is obvious that there's breakdown somewhere and then you break those teams apart and you kind of separate those into their main concerns and then run those like a super lean uh, startup group and if you can if you can keep doing that, I mean, it kind of builds a hierarchy into it, but I think that's the only way because I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever worked um, in a company where there's like 10 people and or 12 people or something and everyone is like really intimate with each other. Everyone knows, like everyone trusts each other to like do their job and to help, you know, pull extra weight when they need to or whatever it is. But then all of a sudden, you know, there's some need to scale out and you're at 20 or 30 people and things are just like, they don't run the same and you have you have all these weird, weird issues bubble up. There's communication issues. There's, um, I, I think that's the scaling issue that you just look there and you say, okay, well, how can we break down this group into smaller teams that can actually run like more efficiently in isolation and then have like some kind of construct that can communicate across those across those teams yeah i think scaling's hard at a consultancy yeah. or a product company you know it's it's definitely its own beast like there many people say that the people who start a company are not the people that scale a company right they're two different types of people right. and i completely agree uh, i think that what philosophy and pivotal do really well is they avoid that issue by just having really small project teams and treating those project teams independently. Um, and then, like Dave said, like as soon as a project ends, then some people go join another project and then another project team forms and you're constantly kind of working within your company culture and getting a feel for different contributors and their style. Yeah, and, and those and, teams have a lot of opportunity to um, do what they need to uh, self, self-direct them. Exactly, yeah. Their effort. But let's talk about both of you in, in your respective roles there had the responsibility of helping the client own the project at the end. And I think this is another important part about outsourcing product design and product development is at some point the party's over, the last check has been written, and the client has a product that they've given birth to, and they have to now stand up 
a product management process. They have to be thinking like a product. What's do they succeed typically? I mean, I think there's it's always challenging, right? The best thing that we can do as people helping them on their project as consultants um, is helping them, setting them up for success. So whether that is running hiring workshops and helping them find a technical co-founder or onboarding a new engineer or helping them find a UX designer, maybe that's all that they need is that they're, they really need to dive deeper into the research because they have something that they built that works, but they need to understand more about their users. It's kind of like identifying whoever, whatever the project is, whatever the client's needs are and helping them kind of bring on the pieces that they can't already fill themselves. Um, I would say that it's pretty rare that I leave a project and I didn't help them hire someone else. Because if you were just one founder and you're like, okay, now you have a product, go, go do it. Like, it's really hard to do things by yourself. You know, so helping them create a structure and a team around their idea, I think, is the best thing that we can do as consultants. Uh, creating a product practice is kind of the question that you asked. I feel like the way I would answer that is more with implementing lean thinking. So you have this idea. Should we go spend $30,000 to build it? Or are there other lightweight things that you could do to test that idea? And that's really what they should be able to walk away with at the end of the day is being like, oh, what are, what are my assumptions here? How could I test this in an easier way? Right. And that's when I know I've succeeded as a, as a product manager. It just came out of a product management boot camp that I was teaching this weekend. And, you know, of course, everyone comes and expects that in four hours they can learn everything about Scrum, everything about product design, everything about everything. And the thing that I spend the most amount of time on is validated learning. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I would echo that sentiment that, it is the core product management methodology. Everything else can be learned. Everything else can be augmented as you get other skills kind of on your team. But embracing that reducing waste idea. And I struggle with this. I mean, even even internally, we're, you know, we're thinking about product ideas all the time. I mean, even 100 p.m. started too big. You know, now I look back and I think, no, I could have done this and I could have done this. And it's just... The more uh, capable you are of, of conceiving and building solutions, the more dangerous you actually become to your own thinking because you tend to go, well, you're, you know, Dave, you could just code it. Yeah. So why don't I just quickly code it? And yeah, you could quickly code it, but that's not the same as actually deciding if it's something worth coding. Um, let's talk about why you left philosophy and Pivotal. You have a new venture. So your partners, your romantic partners, and now your partners in business. Are you sure this is a good idea? <laughs> Too soon to tell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think kind of to your last point, it's like you got to just throw a dart at the board and try, <laughs> you know? We're and like do a where are they now yeah, episode <laughs> that it works. from now and see what happens. And then iterate from there, right? So that's where we're at right now is, yeah, we started our own business and we we did that because we've been consulting for three years uh, at these different shops. And before that, we were both a part of small startup teams. Uh, so we've kind of seen it from both of those sides. And now we kind of want to take the reins and have a little bit more control over the projects that we take, the timelines that we work on, and the problems that we solve. And Dave is an amazing engineer, and I love doing design and product. So we were like, let's, let's just do the damn thing. So it's called Creative Brains. Help us to understand hiring creative brains. Like if, if I'm sitting around and I'm thinking, I need a great product consulting team, why you? I think for a lot of the same reasons that you might hire Pivotal and Philosophy, um, except for it's going to be more of a close, uh, like a, a more intimate experience. Obviously, we're going to be catering more to your needs as much as we can. That's what's one of the things that will differentiate us. For clients who go to Pivotal and Philosophy, they know exactly what they're going to get out of Pivotal and Philosophy. So maybe there's other clients out there who are like, well, we have this other kind of organizational uh, concern, you know, it's scaling our teams or maybe just kind of like trying to create a sort of startup culture from within our big enterprise. And we don't really know how that fits with Pivotal. We're not ready to kick off a bunch of projects. We're just kind of like looking to better understand our organism. 
And so for things like that, they could definitely come to us. Like we've seen, we've seen um, projects, successful projects in huge, huge scale teams and small scale teams, uh, varying maturities of the product. So we'll be able to bring that kind of um, experience to those clients, um, as well as, you know, when the time is right, do do a more traditional um, product development engagement where we can execute as a, a balanced team. I mean, we kind of represent the full stack of you know client facing concerns to engineering concerns uh, with the two of us. And I think the difference is mainly is mainly the the more concierge kind of experience for clients, and it'll be a very pointed solution for what they what they need at the time. I would also say that Dave and I don't really have an interest in growing this thing that big. It's very much just like, we love working on projects that change the world. We love working on projects together. And we, for better or for worse, like live products, eat, breathe, sleep, yeah. these products. Yeah, I mean, what we found was... We yeah, were... yeah, looking around, there's post-its <laughs> yeah. workflows everywhere. Yeah. I can't tell if it's just for fun or it's all like, actual... It's all kind of like melted together. <laughs> we were like, are we doing a retrospective for our relationship right now? <laughs> what exactly? I had a guest on the show, you joke, but uh, talked about doing retrospectives. He said his, his wife would do a retrospective with him at the end of each week to let him know, you know what he did well and... Yeah. Yeah. what he could improve on so yeah it's not that far-fetched actually i mean we're, we're literally doing it it's all kind of like melted together at this point which is is cool i mean i think one of the obvious points for me to just say yes and try this out was that we would just talk about this stuff after work anyway mm-hmm. we both get home and we would say hey i have this this is what i'm working on this week this is the challenge i'm working on can you help me think through it and we pretty much knew like main uh challenges that we were facing at our um respective office jobs that (laughs) was was why not have us just talking about the solution for this project we're working on together wouldn't that be great we're gonna talk about it anyway so yeah and just giving each other like a new lens to look at that problem through you know and always kind of supporting each other in that so creative brains came out of those after hours kind of conversations where we were already doing it and I think the other thing that really differentiates us is when you go to kind of these consultancies, they charge this very expensive rate, and you don't know if you're getting a senior person or a junior person. Right. With us, you're getting only senior people every time, and you you know what you're paying for. Right. I'm glad that you brought up the point about we're not looking to grow, because this is you know a thing I think about a lot. There's a tremendous amount of pressure on businesses to scale. And certainly if you're looking for, for VC money, then they're looking for scalable, huge sort of disruption businesses. But it is perfectly admirable, whether it's a service business, whether it's a product business to say, look, there's a niche, it's a small problem. I know that it's not gonna cross the chasm into a, a majority kind of solution. And I'm perfectly happy with that because I want to work a very, my, part of my goals are just work less, surf more or whatever the thing yeah. may be so you know uh, that's inspirational to me I, I wish i knew that or i thought that way eight and a half years ago my path might have looked very differently but i can attest to that certainly going through year over year growing 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 without ever stopping to say are we happy do we want this more employees more responsibilities and yeah. definitely development factory we've refactored a few times based on that understanding so yeah absolutely and i think that's just what we saw is like we always have the most fun when we're working on a really small team with people that we really love and trust and and admire we think they're the smartest people you know and that's that's how we want to be selective in the clients that we take and the you know few coworkers that we decide to bring on so when a client whether it's an enterprise client or not an enterprise client when a client thinks they need a product or want a product right what do you think is that where does that insight strike and or who does it strike with is it you know is it always the ceo who has a great idea is it you know a single developer within an organization that's been running a macro for you know three years and thinks it could be something more i'm speaking about your clients that come to you what do you see as being their reason for wanting to build something it really depends like dave said like the people that we're talking to right now and the projects that we have coming up 
um, in the next six weeks are more process consulting. And that's coming from like C-level people who are like, I have no idea what my team is doing and I need to have better metrics around their effectiveness as, as engineers and our, you know, strides towards our goal kind of thing. So being able to communicate up. So that's one area that we're going to be focusing on. And that came from C-level. I think when people come to us from, we want to build a product and where that idea came from, I would say it's mostly leaders at this point that are, yeah, yeah like CEOs and co-founders. I would be surprised if there was a developer who kind of like bubbled up some kind of interesting idea and it got all the way to us. Uh, that would be very, that would be very surprising. Yeah. So you're just out hunting C-level executives then when I mean, you're not doing this interview yeah. here with me? Is that the, some people are that we're talking to. You have to do the pointy to. end of the business now. You have to do the selling <laughs> and all of the okay, other so stuff. Okay, if, so if the, if the business that we're talking to is of a certain scale, then their engineering department is buried between like tons of layers of hierarchies. Yeah. So there's a really small chance that, that any engineer doing something is going to like convince his boss's boss to, you know, reach out to a consulting shop and develop some product idea. And, you know, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, but I haven't seen it and I wouldn't expect to see it. I would love to see it, but uh, I wouldn't expect to see it. I feel like other product managers at enterprise companies have access to these resources too. It's really, it's really about who has the money. I mean, who makes the budget decision, right? And those are the people that we're talking to because I mean, obvious. The, this the the flip side of the highly scaled organization that that we'd be talking to is a small organization that we're talking to, which is a startup which has like three people on it. And yeah. sure, the the person we're talking to is a founder, CEO, or whatever, but they're also the developer. So it's like <laughs> yeah. right. Well, if you kind of subscribe to the idea of of sales as being about problem finding and the people who are most ready to this is true in product, right? The the those early adopters are the people who have tried to envision a solution themselves, maybe even put money toward it. And I don't think there's any business on the planet that hasn't thought about how could we make more money, whether it's a, a, a real problem or just sort of a, a desire versus being connected with your own organizational dysfunction. Mm-hmm. I think that's that the reason that kind of internal tool idea doesn't come to the surface as much is because most of the time people are disconnected from un- how unhealthy their own businesses are running. So they're not thinking about, I need to solve this problem. Yeah. They don't know it's a problem. We digress. <laughs> All right, we do a little segment here on the show called get the job, learn the job, love the job. And it's really in service of our listeners who are out there wanting to get into the product management space, maybe actively working in product management and just looking for encouraging words. And, you know, I want to offer a little skew here because one thing I thought about Mallory as we were talking is product consultancies are kind of like the new agency. You know, as as organizations are understanding more and more the importance of owning the data and really tracking it, outsourcing to an advertising agency, at least the scale of work that people used to outsource is going away because I think they realize no advertising is back to where it belongs, which is just sort of one node in the marketing constellation. So product consultancies are the new agencies, which means there may be a number of people out there listening going, should I go and apply as a product manager at a product company or should I go and work at Pivotal or Philosophy or the Development Factory or Creative Brains? What advice would you offer somebody maybe staring down that fork in the road specifically? Well, if you haven't worked at a startup or in a bigger product company, I wouldn't recommend consulting. I think the best consultants have failed a couple times before they go and advise people on how to do the best job. And that's from me personally. Like if I was a startup going to a consultancy, I wouldn't want a newbie out of college telling me what to do. Um, you have a very different perspective on I, this. I could argue it totally differently. Argue. Yeah. Let's just not make it so harmonious. <laughs> People think you two just get along all the time. It's just perfect all the time. Yeah. Um, I, I really like the structure that big consultancies impose on projects. And I feel like with a really inexperienced um, product person or engineer, as long as they're with another, you know, sort of mentor type that can make sure they're not you know, 
doing any really bad things, they can ramp up really fast and get exposure to a lot of things very quickly. Um, not only technology-wise, but uh, like product-wise and like business vertical-wise. So I think there's a big opportunity if you're fresh out of college and you can get a job at one of these companies. Like you, you can pretty much learn cutting-edge process for any startup that you subsequently join. Um, so if if it's the you know process and the technology that you're really interested in then i think that it's a no no question you should try and join a consulting you know a consulting firm that can handle your the, the more of the educational kind of like upbringing for you but if if you have like passion about if you have passion about whatever product that's going to like trump whatever you know consulting gig you're going to you're going to get because that that product you're going to be thinking about all the time and you're going to like put in more hours. Um, yeah, just cultivate more passion. I will add a uh, add-on to my previous <laughs> I think if you're an engineer or a designer and you go work for a consultancy, that's the freaking best. But if you are a product manager going to work for a consultancy, based on my experience working on these small teams, I didn't get a mentor a lot of the time. Yeah. So I was happy that I had my past startup experience to rely on to make decisions off of. Whereas I feel like if I was flying blind, it would, it yeah. wouldn't be helpful. My perspective my is definitely yeah. from an engineering perspective. Right. Um, so I can see that. I mean, often, often we don't have pair, pair PMs. Yeah. That doesn't at, happen. At Pivotal, there's exclusively pair programming. So you're, you're never going to get an engineer just solo. Um, right. So there's more opportunity for that. Well, the, the trade-off also that I'm hearing is you're going to get to touch a lot of different projects, mm -hmm. right? For better and for worse, to your point, Mallory. But if you go and work inside of a consultancy, whether you're coming in as a designer, as an engineer, or even as a PM, you're going to touch a lot of products, but the trade-off is you're only going to touch them at a very specific point in the product life cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, even when you were describing earlier that, you know, philosophy is a great fit if you're just kind of looking to go into market, if you're just exploring problem solution fit, product market fit. And one of the things that, that doesn't get a light shone on it as much is how do you steer a product that's in the maturity phase of the product life cycle, right? Because the, the, the strategy and the tactics to uh, hold a market position that you've worked very hard to build up and you know not lose it to the next new disruptor startup is a very different type of mindset than just figuring out if you can create a great product bring it into market and capture a few clients you know another one of the reasons this show exists is is precisely because i'm aware even as an instructor uh, you know i've worked on 60 to 80 products a year for almost a decade that's a lot of different experiences to draw upon and yet I've never been a product manager at an enterprise level organization. You know, we had guests on the show talk about doing road mapping, thinking about decisions five years out. And I'm thinking, I've never even made a personal decision thinking five years out, let alone a product. Mm -hmm. So th that's probably the other part is, do you want to experience what it's like moving from growth to maturity or or trying to rejuvenate a product perhaps that's in decline and being tasked with how can we give new life to this or or break it apart and sell it or whatever just different different thing concerns i suppose so is your question around i don't know that it was a question it's yeah. really just more of a reflection of the benefits of going and working at a consultancy mm. is touching a lot yeah. over a shorter period of time. And, and the trade-off is not getting enough opportunity to see, because you're starting to see now, even here in LA, companies go down that people never thought were going to go down. Sort of these, you know, startup darlings from a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the piece, right? Is there's, it's one thing to get some early traction, to get picked up in TechCrunch, to get a big lift from some early PR and um, some good VC funding. And it's another thing to actually be like a, you know, an Airbnb or a MailChimp, you know, these products that really came along Basecamp mm -hmm. that are still holding down space all of these years later. So it's just, yeah, it's just a contemplation. Yeah. You've just got me thinking. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, hardest thing about this space? 
to learn to to discover about yourself biggest failures just anything that reminds us that it sounds really cool but it isn't always easy you you're you have to constantly be learning new things Mm -hmm. uh the technology for technologists like it's constantly changing so you basically have to like you can you can come in at any point and learn some new technology and be relevant and and that's great but if you're also not learning while you're in it you can become irrelevant really quickly and so you have to kind of like babysit your you know education yeah and there's probably a certain amount of you know managing that that i think is important because no one is going to come along and say oh hey dave you know just be mindful because a lot of people are are moving to node.js and if that's not your background you have to be paying attention to where the market is going yeah and not becoming irrelevant and if you get a project that lasts a year um or more and it's on a technology that's already kind of very mature um you might not ever get to node.js you know you might not ever do mobile it might it might be something you have to do in your spare time, which, you know, you, it's hard to find. Right. Yeah, I would just, to piggyback off of that, the thing to watch out for is that the type of person that's going to do well in either of these roles is, and I mean like a tech lead or a product lead, is you have to have this like insatiable attitude towards learning where you're just constantly trying to find new information. I don't just mean what's the new lean startup you know what's the new like hot trend or catchy phrase i mean i don't understand enough about engineering to help my team so i'm gonna go learn to code or i'm gonna go spend time with you and sit down with you and ask you questions while you're coding so that i can get a sense of how this repo is laid out then i'm going to go sit next with design and like watch them and ask them questions and help them and i think that cross-functional pairing is something that's really helped me get insight into how all the different departments work together and i'm just talking about engineering design and product because that's like what i did at philosophy but if i were at a bigger company i would do the same with marketing and i would do the same with the analytics and data team and all of the different teams to kind of see go on trips with the sales team you know and sit in those conversations those are so informative um because i think as a product manager you're responsible for understanding every part of the business and doing whatever needs to get done to make it successful so i think for the pm role it's like just constantly wanting to learn and understand new parts of the business. No, I think it's absolutely right. Although I did get this hilarious visual of designers and developers running when they would see you in the hall because they're like, <laughs> oh my God, Mallory wants to come and sit by my desk and watch me yeah. lay out this web page in Photoshop for the next eight hours. How can I shake her? I think that that is totally like newer engineers they get really afraid and intimidated because they feel like they have to like justify that they're doing something that's like worth your time kind of thing uh but that's not it should be you should foster a culture of pairing where imagine all the questions that an engineer or designer has throughout the day and if i was just sitting there we could tackle those things in half the amount of time together uh i don't always have the time to sit there but I try to make myself available as much as possible so that we can have those pairing sessions and crank things out super fast. Well, like to bring it back to the ad industry one last time, perhaps it's like the pairing of the art director and the copywriter, you know, and that was such a quintessential, I understand that you bring a very specific vision and I bring a very specific vision and together through our different skill sets, and then, you know, maybe just where they started to fall behind was not inviting the technologist into the <laughs> conversation, so to speak. But uh, instead of just the PM having the client sit there too, taking it back to consulting, right? right? Like having them play that role of like kind of, and not being like hovering micromanagey, but I'm working with you, we're doing this together, you know, and how can you encourage the client to, that that's okay yeah. to do that? I think you have to insist on it. I mean, yeah. I, it, for me now, you talk about taking on the right kinds of projects or clients. I don't want to work with clients who just simply want to dump the work on my lap. Uh, certainly not ones who also are asking me to, you know, do some free work in exchange for equity because I'm thinking, well, if I'm doing, you know, you need to be connected with whether or not this thing is going to work. You need to be connected with this process. You can't just rely on me to conduct the interviews and then come back and say, yeah, it's good. Let's proceed. I, I want you to be in it with me. But I think people want to do it. I mean, people want to create. It is a fun, 
which maybe leads me to the last thing, right? What's the, why do you love this job so much? What's that thing for either of you, both of you? Um, working with clients is always, uh, really exciting when you can have a little breakthroughs and you see eye to eye and, and you share a vision and something just clicks and you kind of get these moments that are sort of sprinkled around the engagement. Um, so that's always super cool. And whenever you get to like enable somebody to kind of see a vision come to reality, that's really inspiring. I think why I really love this job and so happy that Dave and I are doing our own thing now is we have a ton of interests in a ton of different industries. Dave's always been very passionate about biology. We are both very passionate about sustainability and right now gardening. And uh, we're also very interested in music and all these things. And, and having our own consultancy allows us to go after those industries and work on projects that are focused on the thing that gets us most excited about that time in that industry that we really are excited to learn about. So it really allows us the flexibility to to go after them. I'm glad to hear you bring up music, that it hasn't died over no. the years. That's good. That's good. Um, any recommended resources that either of you want to throw uh, onto our ever-growing resource list at 100 p.m.? Uh, books, podcasts, mm -hmm. articles, blogs, just anything. And it doesn't have to be product specific, but just things that you think make you better thinkers, better doers, or it could be science fiction. So many books. <laughs> I, we read a lot. Yeah. Um, so the one that we both just finished reading, which I am obsessed with right now, it's called Radical Focus. Uh, and it's about creating OKRs. So I can send you that that link. It's Christina Wookie. Um, that's a really, really helpful way of looking at the big vision and working backwards to create little milestones that get you to that vision. Uh, so objectives and key results, I just really can't say enough good things about them used by Google, Intel, all of, all of the major players. Uh, the other one that I love is called the mom test. And I think that anyone who's working on a product team, whether you're an engineer, a designer, or a product manager should read this book. And it's all about the art of asking good questions and unpacking questions, answers, um, asking good questions so that you can get answers that you can unpack about whether something is validated or invalidated. So open-ended questions, non-leading questions, all of that stuff. And the whole the reason it's called the mom test is because you can ask questions in a way about a business idea that even your mom can't lie to you about. Right. So it's one of my favorite ones. Um, great, great recommends. I have something to do when I go home later. Yeah. And, and they're both like really short books, so you can finish them in a couple days. I think I mentioned earlier Running Lean. That book really kind of struck a chord with me when I read it. Um, it just kind of like I was in an engagement that I kept finding the only way to uh, effectively communicate with my client was through data and like having, having the data speak for the... Um, for the concerns that I was bringing up and letting them come to the conclusions that they would. And that book, for some reason, it was a timing and it really kind of helped me see how I could think about presenting metrics and data for their product and their business in a way that it would help me convince them that they they needed to like do more user interviews and they needed to um, take a hard look at the data every day to see if the, the health of their of their goal was being, you know, pursued properly. So I really enjoyed that book and it was super, super easy read. What about a personal mantra quote that you live by? This is my quintessential, your life on the side of a mug, inspiring thousands of others when you're gone. It doesn't have to be your quote, but just something that, that uh, inspires you to do what you do or live the way that you live. I think for me, it's uh, don't cling to comfort and everything will be comfortable. And I think that really speaks to the whole addiction to learning and trying out new industries and that sort of thing. It's something that Dave and I have always related on, um, never getting too comfortable in any one city <laughs> uh, or any one industry. So Yeah, mine is fear is the mind killer. I just can't get that mantra out of my head because it seems to work in every situation. Um, what most, does it mean? Yeah, what it means to me is is basically like any apprehension or anxiety around a situation that I'm in is based on fear and that 
that can be confronted and uh, you know worked through as opposed to avoided and reinforced. Um, and so it, it's a quote from uh, Dune, where the main character is. Uh, he's got this spiritual teacher who's his mother, and she gives him this uh, basically a long mantra to follow whenever he's confronted with uh, you know fear in his own life. And he speaks this mantra to himself, and it basically is fear is the mind killer. Um, the only way to overcome the fear is to let it pass through you, and you'll see that the fear is gone and you remain. And so anyway, when I read this, it just kind of, never left me and so i really love that quote <laughs> that's awesome and i mean both of you have done taken the ultimate leap of faith which is going out and starting your own business so i first wish you so much success and i think you're definitely living testament to your own mantras about not being afraid and going for it so that's awesome thank you so much for being on the show thank, thank you, you. You're listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Join me here. We've got a new conversation every Tuesday. We'll see you next time.